We are facing a mental health crisis, and it's more important than ever to have access to the support we need. That's why I'm grateful for BetterHelp, the largest online counseling platform in the world. BetterHelp is changing the way people get help with life challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. With BetterHelp, professional counseling is available anytime, anywhere from your smartphone, computer, or tablet. If you're looking for support, sign up today at BetterHelp.com. Use the promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE to get 10% off sign-up fees. That's BetterHelp.com, promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, welcome back. We got Dr. Laura Bryden in the mix, naturopathic doctor, podcast author, all things women's health, but specifically we're going to talk about evolutionary mismatch and how that has affected women's health, their menstrual cycles, perimenopause, and some of the stuff that women can do to mitigate some of these symptoms, lifestyle modifications, hormone replacement, all things that are solutions-based here. You guys are going to love this episode. She's full of knowledge. Before we move on, make sure to sign up at quadcast.substack.com. Everything you want in one site, video, podcasts, blogs, vlogs, all on one site with the with the paid version. You get access to Solvent Wellness. You also get early access to some of our podcasts via video form. This video is already put on the platform as we speak. So please come and check it out. That's quadcast.substack.com. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Laura Bryden. And what I am so excited about is I am going into an area where I know nothing, nothing. We, we, we're tapping into women's health a bit here, but, you know, we've been covering a lot of the perimenopausal, menopausal stuff, but. I think you guys are going to be blown away about the knowledge that she's throwing down. So, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kwaja. I'm looking forward to chatting. And uh, I got to throw this down, too. We are both Western Canadians, Albertans, although yes. you're in a very a much sexier place than I am right now. Being in Ottawa, you're in New Ze- where in New Zealand are you right now? I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand, Otatahi, New Zealand. Yep. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What, what was the temperature like today? It's it's high summer. It's January, so it's the middle of summer. It's going to be like twenty five oh, Celsius. Yeah. Oh my god! You might have a visitor in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, Laura introduced me to this term before we were talking on the show today about evolutionary mismatch, and I think this is a good way of of diving into some of these women's health issues. So, like I, we're all four years old. What does evolutionary mismatch mean? Okay, it means symptoms or disease risks that come from the mismatch of our ancient physiology with our modern environment, and that includes modern food environment, because we're animals. I mean, I, I sort of, I tell people, don't like to hear that, but I'm a my background before I became a naturopathic doctor as I was an evolutionary biologist. And for me personally, I take great comfort from the fact that we are biological creatures, that we've evolved over a long lineage, and that we have certain requirements that 
we've adapted to over the years. And as you can imagine, the last 70, well, really the last 10,000 years has been quite a change, but the last 50, 60, 70 years has been a huge change for us. No, that is, that is absolutely true. And, and I think, you know, having the concept of evolutionary mismatch, maybe, maybe we could illustrate it with, in terms of some of the issues with women's health, like for example, yes. Uh, menstrual period, perimenopausal periods of life. Like, what's a a good example when it comes to women's health that you could uh, illustrate? Well, there's lots going on with women's health, actually. So I'll start with kind of one of the more mainstream ones, one Mm. that gets talked about a lot and then I think sort of misunderstood, which is that obviously we have more periods now than we used to, Mm. right? So our ancestors would have... They still had periods. I'm pretty confident. I mean, we don't know for sure because we can't go back a uh, hundred thousand years to ask them. But you know, a lot of the time they were pregnant a lot more of the time, and they were breastfeeding a lot more of the time. And so the estimate is, you know, we have about a 400 periods now over a lifetime, and they maybe had 40. And so there's all, straight away that's different for human physiology. And sometimes that that fact gets used as an argument. To for hormonal birth control, which we can circle back to. But I'll just point out being on hormonal birth control, contraceptive drugs is not the same as being pregnant or breastfeeding. It's a different hormonal situation. So just, but another example of um, evolutionary mismatch is I actually think that any symptoms that arise with the perimenopause transition are a classic case of evolutionary mismatch. There's no biological reason really why that transition should be as symptomatic as it sometimes is, but it's Mm. just, we're trying to do this in the modern world. And as I just said, you know, a very different situation. We haven't, we spent less time pregnant. Um, We've maybe been on hormonal birth control. There's alcohol, there's, you know, circadian disruption, all these things that make what should be actually just a, in some ways a superpower really to go into our post-reproductive years has turned it into what is sometimes viewed as a disease state, but it's not a, it's not a yeah disease. Yeah. So, and actually one thing, just like, I mean, our ancestors would have probably, what they probably would have done, you know, just, you know, would have varied individual to individual, but had their last baby around, you know, late, early forties, kind of 42 breastfeed for three or four years, and then just cruise from kind of the low estrogen state of breastfeeding into just cruise straight into menopause. Kind of, it would have been quite a different scenario. Whereas in our modern day perimenopause, we get these huge spikes of estrogen and up and down estrogen roller coaster, which is can be really difficult to deal with. Wow. So let's let's start with the the perimenopausal uh scenario first. And so why why are we seeing the mismatch? Like why are we seeing such changes in in or like more symptomatic uh a scenario for for perimenopausal women like is it what we're eating is it uh you alluded to like we've been taking yeah like these exogenous uh yeah. uh hormones uh like what is it well let's just talk about some of the evidence so first of all i want to say one thing which is to debunk a narrative that menopause is an accident of living too long that is not correct from a scientific perspective so we have of course life expectancy as you know humans used to be across cultures used to be relatively low. The average was 45, but that doesn't mean everyone died by 45. It did not mean that at all. It meant that there was a high rate of infant mortality or childhood mortality, unfortunately. Like historically, you know, in some, it was like one in two kids wouldn't make it past five. Like it's so shocking for us to think about that now. And a lot, and people died from infections and women died in childbirth. And so thank goodness that is not the case anymore. But even we know from updated archaeological evidence that if people were lucky enough to survive all those hazards, a few people got through. And so the biological lifespan that the human frame can sort of sustain and has always been able to sustain, or at least for you know some amount of time, several hundred thousand years, has been, yeah, 70, 70, 80 and beyond. So... And I think I said to you off air, I'll just repeat it again here, there's some lines of evidence to suggest that a longer human lifespan for humans of both sexes, because we evolved together, um, was selected for because women's post-reproductive decades 
are so beneficial for the family group, if that makes sense. And we know that actually from some modern people, like everyone knows women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, getting stuff done. And like, seriously, they gather more food in some groups than any other demographic. You know, the young men are practicing, you know, fighting or whatever it is. I'm just speculating, you know, the young women are having babies, the old men are telling stories and the older women are like gathering food, (laughs) like a lot of it and sharing it with everyone. And so that meant that their long-lived genes were selected for, if that makes sense. So, yeah, so we should be able to do this. In some ways, it should have been a superpower because we get this shift in our metabolism with menopause where we do, we require um, quite a degree of metabolic flexibility to do this. Is metabolic flexibility a topic that's come up with your, some of your other, yeah, so you know about this. So, Women of reproductive age just require more carbohydrates, basically, like just higher energy state. And they need quite a lot more carbs to do all of that, make babies and even have periods and breastfeed. And But women post-reproductive really should be kind of leaner, you know, requiring fewer calories, which used to be a superpower. Like, think about that. You're getting all this stuff done. You've got all these skills. You don't need to eat as much. You can share all your food with your descendants. And, but now we've got this same shift to, in our modern world, that's going to look like a shift to insulin resistance um, in our modern food environment. Does that make sense? Like, so it's, if we're eating oh, in, in this food environment of excess and excess carbohydrate and excess, you know, you know, certain types of vegetable oils and all the things that impair insulin sensitivity in our modern world are, that does, that doesn't match well with, the menopausal shift because, and really it comes down to, because estradiol um, is quite insulin sensitizing. So normally protects younger women to some degree from insulin resistance. And then boom, it's menopause. We kind of, our physiology shifts. I think of it like, a, I don't know, shifting gears or downshifting or something, but Mm. it could be a good thing, but it's often going to translate into insulin resistance, um, some really pretty dramatic things that happen with the brain um, during the perimenopause transition that can have long-term risks. They can produce symptoms, but also arguably produce a a risk for dementia. In my book, Hormone Repair Manual, my perimenopause book, I talk about perimenopause as a tipping point for health at our critical window. It's the perfect time to get as healthy as you can. So I really like that point you're making about that tipping point, uh, Laura, because like, you know, if we could be as a, as, you know, ahead of the game as possible, like we need to address that time period for, for our women, for our women. Cause yeah, as you mentioned, cardiovascular risk, dementia, uh, osteoporosis, all these things that, you know, make you more at risk of seeing me in the intensive care unit. Like we really should be thinking about ways of how to, how to mitigate that. And, I, I I guess the concept too, um, you know, I did, you know, you would hear like theories on, you know, people living longer. So that's why they're having the menopause uh, symptoms. But this is the first time hearing that we could be contributing to like exacerbating some of these symptoms, which I, I you know, I think is uh, important because, you know, w- knowing this, it, it empowers us to try and do something about it. Um and it reframes it too for women that they're not that we're not broken right like that we're not an accident to still be here that whole menopause is an accident of living too long that's very corrosive to it's not it's just and i mean if it was true that would be one thing but it's scientifically just not true there's a book if your listeners are interested called the slow moon climbs by a historian um Susan Mattern, I think is her name. I, it inspired me quite a lot. I read that book when I just before I wrote my book, and she draws together a lot of pieces of evidence, including some of the deep history, deep time, like you know, archaeological, um, paleontological evidence from humans, and just you know, yeah, builds this case that I think we were meant to do this a longer human lifespan evolved because of menopause, essentially, and that we, and even today, like people around the world. Lots of people in other cultures, they they know about menopause. They know women stop having periods or being able to have babies by their late 40s, but they're happy about it. There aren't symptoms. They consider it's a good thing. It's like second girlhood. It's this, you know, resurgence of energy. So the fact that it's so symptomatic and so medicalized for us is a yeah, is a problem. I I, I really want to reinforce that point too about like this is like I mean, if you think about that stage of life, 
kids m- might be out of the house or, yeah. or close to being out of the house. You know, you could really build your career. And some, yeah. I, I think of many of the colleagues at work that I, uh, that I know that have had to sometimes put their careers on hold for raising families and so forth. Now it's your time, you know, and this is where you have also a lot of, you, in, in terms of work, you tons of experience, you get to be a role model to, to so many, mm-hmm. like this is a real opportunity for growth and to be empowered. And so we really should be fostering that. And selfishly, I, I, I think part of the reason I, I, I've been diving into this too is we're in a we're in a healthcare crisis, and knowing that some women are retiring early, there yeah. you know, there's also the mental health issues around this time period. Like I I, I think we got to do everything we can to get everybody like uh, available, and this is part of that. I I, I truly yeah. believe this is part of that. So true. Yeah. Um. So. Just to, like like a, like I'm four years old then. Yeah. What are some of the ways that we offset that mismatch? Like I, I know we touched on it a little bit, but like what are what are some of the ways that women can yeah. be less symptomatic? Sure. I'm just gonna yeah, I'll just I'm happy just to talk through, you know, some of the key treatment options that I talk about in yes, my book. Please. I don't like being, I don't like being coy on podcasts and like, I'll just give it to you. Um, it to you yeah. And the other thing I want to say about just, you're talking about, you know, reframing menopause is a time of, you know, at your peak powers in terms of work, potentially there's also, and this is real. And I have to think it's biological because my patients told me about it, but then I didn't really know until I hit it myself. Cause I'm 53 now. So I'm like well into this and there's a cheekiness that comes. There's this like kind of, Like you just feel like spending more time outside. You're just like happy to say no to people. There's definitely something. Yeah, it's a confidence, I guess. But it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of a more of a, it's weird. It's sort of a a combination of sort of more of a selfishness, but yet at the same time, totally serving the community. And this is, I think, you know, fits with historically what it would have been. Yeah. I I, I totally know what you're you're talking about. I mean, maybe I'll, I mean, not to get a get a wise this, but it's like swag. Like okay. they just they just got a little yeah. bit of like swagger yeah. in their in their yeah. step, a little bit of confidence. It's like you know what I've been there, yeah. Before I've lived, I've lived experience. I, I'm and yeah. I, I just don't give a damn anymore. Like it's just you know, I definitely like I didn't really think about it. Yeah, you said it, but it, I definitely see that. I've seen, I've you seen know, that. women like that. I, I, I'm sure exactly. we all have women like that in our lives, and thank. Goodness, they're around. Like, yeah, we where I like one of the quotes from Susan Matron's book, the book I referenced earlier, is where would we be without all these old ladies? Like, seriously, they're holding <laughs> us, they're holding the world together. Absolutely. So yeah. All right. So what are some ways to feel better for the perimenopause transition? And one thing just to say is one of my other key messages is the symptoms can start a lot earlier, younger than mm-hmm. women realize. So this is another. So first of all, not everyone gets symptoms. Some women just truly don't like they're fine. So that, so they don't want to be like unnecessarily medicalizing themselves and thinking, Oh, is something wrong? Am I okay? So like, if you're feeling fine, then good. Um, But if you're early, even early forties, you know, cause symptoms can start up to 10 years before the final period and they can start while periods are still regular. And a lot of it's from losing progesterone, which I talk about in my book. And so obviously I'm talking about if you're cycling naturally, if you're on the pill, that's a whole different situation because the whole hormonal system is shut down but like if you're having natural cycles and you you can start to lose progesterone your estrogen starts to spike higher and dropping lower and that one of them it's primarily an um a neurological transition this is what the research papers talk about it's a it's a brain recalibration or a brain rewiring and the other side symptom can be super heavy periods for some women but we'll just leave that out of it but in terms of the neurological what can start to arise or much earlier than you think is a reduced ability to cope with stress, um, sleep disturbance. That's the big one. I'd say it's women are like, what the heck? I used to be a great sleeper and now I'm popping awake in the night and I can't function like this. So that's one of them. There can be night sweats as well, usually premenstrual night sweats. It can be increased in migraines. This is a really classic one. Like someone might've had migraines when they were in first puberty. So now we're talking about perimenopause, which is second puberty. Um, migraines in first puberty and then maybe migraines on the pill or something, but then they went away during those peak reproductive years and then they start to come back. That's another symptom. Um, 
Yeah, and an increased risk of anxiety and depression. That is real. That's in the mm-hmm. research. And again, not everyone gets that, but it's important to know too that these symptoms are temporary. So I think that really helps women too. Like even if you are experiencing symptoms, you know, this isn't how you're going to be forever now. There's this cheeky confidence, like confident, yeah, what we just described coming. By the time you get to your late, you know, probably your mid fifties, you're going to start to think, wow, this is, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. I think in most cases. So yeah. So, and one thing to know that it happens earlier than you think is important because um, a lot of times I'm going to go to their doctors and say, oh gosh, could this be perimenopause? And there's the shame around that too. As soon as you think, oh, wait, wait, what? Is this perimenopause? It can't be like, I'm only 42. And then you start to feel this is extra layer. You've got the physical symptoms and then this layer of like stigma and shame on top of it, which is crazy. Um, but then you go to the doctor and you think, I think this is happening. And for one thing, your average family, like GPs, not going to have a lot to offer actually, unfortunately, which is why we're doing this today. But also they might say mistakenly, oh no, like you're, you're still having, you're still having periods. So come back to me when your periods stop. And actually what the research shows by the time your periods stop, usually one or two years after the two years after the final period, most of the neurological symptoms are finished unless you kind of go down the wrong path at the tipping point and have continuing symptoms. But for a healthy woman, they're going to sort themselves out. Oh, the other neurological symptom is, yeah, it's a little scary, but it's this um, temporary um, kind of cognitive decline, actually. Like it, it's, it's, it's decline is the wrong word, but it's like, it's start missing, forgetting words. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be very disconcerting. And you think I like this example I use in my book is I forgot where I parked my car one day and my husband and stepdaughter were sitting in the car and they're watching me like, like, when, did you not remember that we're in this car park? I just, so things like that. And it's, when it happens, it's a little weird. And, but there are, it's important to know that in most women that is temporary and you come back up to your full mental powers and treatment mm-hmm. can help as well. So. Yes. And so did we mention hot flashes too or no? We, yeah. Next one, hot, hot flashes yeah. or as yeah. we say down under hot flashes. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so in terms of maybe, uh, lifestyle, non-hormonal yeah, treatment sure. options in terms of what you find has worked well. Yeah. What are, what are, what are some options? Yeah. Let's, let's go through them. And I'll just preface it by saying I do support hormonal therapy as well. So none of this is to say that women shouldn't take hormones. Like that's an option too, but non-hormonal things, which work really well for a lot of women is number one. And this is very unpopular, but I'll start with it is quit alcohol. Mm. I just honestly couldn't be more certain of this. I've seen it consistently across patients, friends, myself, like and when you say quit, yeah. like, like hundred percent or like Pretty reduce much. significant. Well, okay. at least give yourself the gift of a couple months with none and okay. just see how it feels because definitely alcohol will trigger hot flashes, night sweats, the night, the day you have it, but also there's a cumulative effect. So it's all to do. I think a lot of it's to do with circadian rhythm so one of the things that's recalibrating with perimenopause is circadian rhythm is the actual part in our hypothalamus that our body clock and that's wobbling because it's very much affected by estradiol and progesterone. So it's wobbling, it's wobbling, it's trying to find its new legs and alcohol worsens that. So there is something, a deepening of sleep and just a feeling better that comes after a few weeks off alcohol. So I would just invite people to try it. And what I sometimes say to my patients is when you get out the other side of this and you're like 55 and in Italy or, you know, traveling or whatever it is, you know, you can sit, have kick back and have your glass of wine and, you know, be sort of return to having occasional alcohol. And it's probably not a big deal. The other reason to probably avoid alcohol during this time, which is a um, kind of a separate issue, but is it's, it's a cancer risk. Actually, I just saw in the Canadian news today, a big thing about alcohol and cancer. So it's a breast, alcohol is a breast cancer risk specifically. Um, And my understanding of the current research is that actually even moderate alcohol intake, so not even a full, not even a drink a day, but, you know, close to that is more of a risk for breast cancer than modern estrogen therapy is. So just to, you know, frame that it's, it's not nothing. It's pretty significant. So that's another, and this you know, sort of a riskier time, I think, for breast cancer risk because our estrogen is going so high and because we're losing progesterone, which normally, you know, protects our breast to some extent. So, okay, number one, so alcohol. Mm-hmm. Number two, move the body. So the brain loves 
movement. So perimenopause is a neurological transition. The brain is recalibrating. As I say in my book, the brain is rewiring. Have you had other guests talk about how much the brain loves the body to move? It's just this crazy thing. In general, for sure, like in terms of managing uh, stress, anxiety, and all these things, and then also being a a repellent for dementia, we've talked a little bit about that too, but yeah, not in this context. So This is like muscle. I think it's something to do with called BDNF. That's the brain Mm -hmm. drive neurotrophic factor, gets stimulated by movement. Obviously you get, I, I'm a big fan of moving outside. So getting that, especially in the mornings and morning light for circadian rhythm and move your body. And I always talk about movement now rather than exercise because exercise sounds like a chore, whereas movement is joyful. It should be like just whatever it is you like to do and maybe stop worrying about the experts and oh, you should do this much strength. I mean, strength training is great if you enjoy it, but like, you know, I did a little poll on my Instagram account is like, tell me what the movement is you love and why. And I had, you know, I had one, I remember this one comment, which I'm actually going to put in my new book. This woman said she loves Brazilian jiu-jitsu and she will die on that hill. Like she's never going to change. I'm like, are you going to talk that person, try to talk that person into doing some other kind of movement when this is what she loves? But like, this is what it comes down to. It, I believe yeah. like one of the things we say on the show all the time is like, find what works for you. Like there's yeah. no cookie cutter solution. Like I'm, no. I'm a big fan of resistance training for a lot of people, yes. but like I would rather you go for walks if that's going to get you more active than hit some gym that you don't like, uh, that you're less totally. motivated to go to. So hundred percent totally. with that. Yeah. hundred percent. Every kind of <clears throat> every kind of movement that's been studied, as far as I know, for perimenopausal symptoms gives some relief. So, yes, mm-hmm. strength training, resistance training, yoga, walking, it, it's all, it helps. So everyone, a lot of people in the UK are really into cold water swimming, which is another <laughs> thing. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like you could do that in, the, in, uh, New, in New Zealand, yeah. too, if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, well, I I occasionally will jump in. I'll I'll jump in a mountain lake sometimes if I'm feeling brave. So, yeah. So going down the list, um, the next thing would be, well, I'm going to put a supplement in there and then we'll carry on with lifestyle things, but I'm a huge fan of magnesium. And so I, we get these, we have these magnesium powders um, down under in Australia and New Zealand that have a combined magnesium and the amino acid taurine. So I talk about that in the book quite a lot. I mean, in, in North America, you can get them separately. They're both inexpensive, safe. I mean, this is one of these supplements and it's, it can be a real game changer. And I think there's a few things going on. Both magnesium and taurine um, stabilize the GABA system, like the GABAergic system. So they're quite calming. They both help with energy production in the mitochondria and so help with insulin sensitivity. So it's sort of stabilizing metabolism during this metabolic recalibration. It's stabilizing the brain. It can really help with sleep. It's just a simple intervention. And often, as you know, if you could just start feeling a bit better and sleeping, then you can do the other things. Then you've got more energy to eat better and go for that walk or like gym session or whatever it is. So yeah, I'm not, I don't hold back with the magnesium. I just, yeah. yeah. And also there's like little downside, maybe a lot the GI side, if you overdo it, but like yeah. really there's minimal downside to throwing down some mag. Yeah. It's very, it's safe. It's inexpensive. Yeah. So people can, when I was, when I, with my perimenopause book, my editor at one point said, Oh my goodness, should we just put this in the water for everyone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I take um, it. Yeah. All right. And then, Carrying on, you know, I think getting, well, for what it's worth with my patients, I do like to around that um, in their women's forties test for insulin resistance. If I think there might be insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, I feel like now is the time to know Hmm. and not everyone's going to have it, which is great. They can then focus on some of the other things, but if there is insulin resistance, then because it's a tipping point for diseases and because it's uh, because sorry, perimenopause is a tipping point and because insulin resistance itself can create symptoms and make the whole transition more difficult. It's really the perfect time to reverse insulin resistance. And I'm sure you've had other, probably had guests talk about that. And yeah. Well, it was a big theme for us, like for the, well, the pandemic because of how much metabolic syndrome was a player in our COVID patients. So we covered a lot on how we reverse it. So it's a, a topic that is very close and dear to my heart. Okay. Well, you can put some links in the show notes to some of your other episodes. I mean, there's, as you know, there's lots of different ways to come at it. So again, there's no cookie cutter. 
one way, I mean, I think, for example, through my lens, actually, I think the gut plays a big, pretty big role in some of it. There's something called mm-hmm. metabolic endotoxemia, which is a lot about, um, anyway, without getting too technical, LPS from the gut, from uh, affecting insulin sensitivity. So there's lots of things. And magnesium helps um, moving mm-hmm. the body and changing your diet. So it, broad strokes, it should be a whole food diet, as close to a whole food diet as you can, giving up the ultra processed foods. Women, I would argue women in perimenopause do require more protein than when they were younger. Like there is a Mm. a value in upping your protein, especially your morning protein, which both helps you feel with satiety, helps you feel full and also um, helps to entrain the circadian rhythms. So, I mean, people might be exploring different modes of intermittent fasting. And I also think that's good. I would say for women, I get uh, one thing I would just say like to you know, factor everything in. But I think some protein by 10 a.m., some amino acids by 10 a.m., just to help entrain circadian rhythm and calm the brain and just is good. So if you can work that into your, you know, fasting, I don't know how much you guys, if you've talked about it. Yeah, it was one of the things that I've slowly um, opened my eyes to was the differences between men and women when it came to fasting, like in terms of like I, this is this is just not yeah. this is just anecdote, not a professional yeah. opinion or anything. But I'm hearing more stories about exactly what you're describing, like having if you're going to fast, do the earlier window stuff, like eat earlier and then end, like have your last meal earlier as a better way of transitioning. Um, definitely hearing more about the increase in protein. I mean, I think most people need more protein in general, yeah. but you know, doing these like 24 hour fasts and or longer, I think for a lot of what I'm seeing, like middle-aged women, like if, if anything, it seems like it's detrimental or almost like it's, there's hormone imbalance, more cortisol that's developed. But um, once again, this is just me hearing uh, with my, uh, like hear what I hearing through other podcasts and, 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 and anecdotes, but. Well, there, there isn't a lot of research. So we all, all of us are kind of having to go somewhat on anecdotal evidence. I think the main consensus at the moment, and that could change, is that, yeah, women do have sort of a more sensitive nervous system in terms of yeah cortisol response. And fasting is a little stressful, but I think for some women, it depends on what else is going on in your life and just everything. But like, yeah, I think if I say to my patients, if you, you know, if you feel stressed or unhappy, Fasting should feel good, right? It should feel like, again, give your body the gift of being in a fast, a gentle fasted state. And if it's stressful and making you not sleep or then something's not right and you need to tweak that. The other thing I would just say about on the topic of fasting, just more broadly zooming out, is potentially for young women. So young women need to be very careful. So I'm in the camp where I do think women can do intermittent fasting. I don't have some blanket rule about how women can't do it or anything like that, especially women in the perimenopause transition and maybe beyond when we've you know, we're trying to deal with this shift to insulin resistance and counter that. Even young women with maybe um, polycystic ovary syndrome and confirmed insulin resistance can benefit from some gentle fasting. So it's always the individual. But one thing I would just point out for anyone listening, especially healthcare practitioners or young women themselves, there's one of the things that's happening is um, a slightly different topic, but a lot of young women are being mistakenly told they have PCOS when they don't. Mm -hmm. And it's coming from reliance on the ultrasound finding of polycystic ovaries, which really doesn't mean anything at all because any woman can have polycystic appearing ovaries at any time. It just means a high number of follicles, undeveloped follicles. It just means you didn't ovulate that month for whatever reason. For example, so here's a very specific thing. Women who have lost their period to under eating can show polycystic ovaries on Mm. ultrasound. That's called hypothalamic amenorrhea. Now, if you mistakenly say, oh, boom, you've got PCOS, and then she's going to Google and say, oh, this treatment for PCOS is low carb, and she's already under eating. I mean, I'm just saying this because this is happening. And then she goes, I need to fix my PCOS by eating less, by restricting carbs. And as you probably know, restricting carbs and eating more protein actually suppresses your appetite. So these young women are in trouble. Like they are, I mean, it's fixable, but like they are going 180 degrees in the wrong direction. They're not getting their periods. They're very upset. They think they're broken. They're going to need the pill because they can't do it. And they just need to eat more. And in that case, they need carbs. Mm-hmm. They Those young women should not be low carb or intermittent fasting. They're already under eating. 
So well, thanks for highlighting that. Cause I, yeah. I do think it's good to kind of highlight who the ideal group is and who isn't the ideal group to be doing some of Correct. these interventions. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So yeah, we're uh, trying to reverse metabolic syndrome or trying to uh, yeah. like, uh, at least assess for metabolic syndrome. Ain't, yeah. Anything else for managing? Well, those are, those are the big ones. So I'll just summarize for everyone listening. We talked about alcohol, coding alcohol, moving the body, taking magnesium, maybe with taurine and we're all, whatever steps are required to reverse insulin resistance. And for most, honestly, for most women that does a lot. And then beyond that, I guess with my patients beyond that, I am looking at hormone therapy, either my approach is a little different in that um, in the early perimenopausal years, um, I may look at using progesterone only. And so by progesterone, and oh, then look at, look at estrogen coming in later. And now, so there is another guest you should have. I keep dropping these names. Yeah, and, name, name drop away. So we, her we name is Professor Geraldine Pryor. Um, she's at UBC. She's a reproductive endocrinologist. She runs an organization called the Center for Menstruation and Ovulation Research. She she and I have written a paper together. She's a scientist. So she's a scientist. She was a clinician. She's has been a scientist. She's for four decades. She's published over a hundred papers, a lot of them on progesterone. So she's a big advocate for the role of progesterone itself, not just estrogen. So, and this is, when I say progesterone, I, this is different than just the progestins that are put there to protect the uterine lining. This is body identical progesterone, which in Canada is Prometrium. And it can lighten flow, which is so for those perimenopausal women with crazy heavy periods, that can help. It can also... It's very active in the brain. So I don't know if you if you know or your listeners know, but progesterone, real progesterone, metabolizes to a neurosteroid called allopregnenolone, which is this, it interacts with GABA receptors. It's hugely important for the brain, actually. We all, actually, all of us make some degree of allopregnenolone all the time, men and women, everyone makes it, some amount of it. But women women of reproductive age make a huge amount. and And then obviously during pregnancy, even more. And our brains are kind of used to that and rely on it. So this is one of the reasons that real progesterone can be used therapeutically for some of the neurological symptoms, including um, sleep disturbance, migraines, um, anxiety. So yeah, I can send you some links for that. And if you want to get Professor Pryor on your podcast, that would be awesome. She'd be a great guest. Yeah. No, this is, this is gold. uh, Yeah. Laura, like, um, wow. So so yeah, so you, as you mentioned, those are lifestyle medic uh, yeah. approaches. Uh, looking at progester progesterone, uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, from, progesterone yeah. only. Yeah. I have a couple. Of, yeah, and yeah, then keep, and est- yeah, you yeah, keep going. Yeah, and then I'll, so then estrogen can come in at some point. Like if if then estrogen therapy is required at some point, usually later in the perimenopause transition, like basically around when periods start to s- stop and have big gaps between periods, and then the year after the final period, and that's when the body is recalibrating to that lower estrogen. And that's particularly when estrogen therapy, like, um, and estrogen therapy for anyone listening, probably know this, but it's, it's all body identical now. Like when I started practicing 25 years ago, hormones were not body identical. You know what I mean by that, right? Like modern day hormone therapy is they're molecules that are exactly identical to estradiol and progesterone. That's what we're mm. taking now and giving. Whereas in the past, and obviously hormonal birth control is not, body identical. So there is a difference. I mean, we know now that this is why the standard hormone therapy is body identical because it's safer. Mm-hmm. Um, so modern day estrogen patches are, I would say to your listeners, natural progesterone, what we used to call natural hormones. It's the standard now, which is so good. Um, yeah. So not to get, I don't know if this is a yeah. good question or not, but like if my perusal of uh, some of the treatment for the perimenopausal women was that they were going estrogen first with some of the uh, with progesterone with progesterone. Yeah, but so, the, so like what's the what's the <laughs> philosophy difference? Or okay. and I might be getting it wrong. So no, no, no. Think. You 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 put your finger on there is a um almost I would say a paradigm shift involved here. So this idea to use progesterone itself therapeutically is radical. Um, 
Yes, you were right. So the conventional mode has been, it's all about estrogen. And then you choose whichever progestin or progesterone in some cases you want it purely only for the sake of the uterine lining. Like that's the mainstream view. Then this is why I mentioned Professor Geraldine Pryor, because she's been, yeah, so she's been for 40 years trying to, you know, be the champion of this different approach. And so it is a paradigm shift. It is some of you know, doctors listening, I'll be thinking, wait, what? I've never heard of using Prometrium on its own for things. But yes, so that is, you are correct. That has not been standard, but it is an option. And it's, um, it's quite a big topic. So I'll let Gerilyn describe that to you if you we'll, can get we'll her let, on we'll, the podcast. Yeah, oh, we'll get yeah. her. I'll yeah, just, you'll get it. I'll name drop. We're, we're persistent. We got you. <laughs> yeah. um, so and and just to give the listeners a sense, like, with the, what you're describing, like the lifestyle changes, the p- potential for hormone uh, treatment, like how how successful are we, like amongst your patients, how successful in terms of managing symptoms are you? Yeah, it's a good question. And I haven't done, I haven't been collecting formal data. I wish I kind of wish I had, but I would say my, um, anecdotally, this is what my expectation, like if a patient comes to me now, like just standard, you know, 45 night sweats, premenstrually, you know, not sleeping, getting more migraines, just not feeling great, feeling a little jittery, <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, wobbly. And then I would say, look, okay, do these, if you can do these things, you know, just commit to some amount of moving your body, trust me on the alcohol thing and take this magnesium taurine powder and come back to me and two or three months and let's just see where you're at and, or check-ins earlier, actually, because it can work faster than that. And I usually tell them, I think there's a 50% chance that's all you're going to need. Mm. And then also I'll test for insulin resistance at that point as well. But like, so 50%, I'd say it's about 50%. That's all. And some women are happy about that. I, you know, they don't even really want hormone therapy. They're like, I'm good. If I'm good, if, I, if I'm, you know, my symptoms are good and I don't have any perceived, you know, disease risks, then I'm just going to keep going. Um, whereas about, I think about 50% need more help in some form. And that's where, I I mean, obviously I do a little bit of herbal medicine prescribing as well, but that's where hormone therapy could start to come in Mm. as well. There's another nutrient I want to mention while I'm still, before I forget, and it's choline. Do you know about choline? No, I don't Um, know about choline. Okay. So it's one of these, um, it's considered a conditionally essential nutrient. There are a few like that. Actually, taurine would be conditionally essential, choline. It means that we can manufacture some of it ourselves, like a body can produce it, but we also clearly are expecting to consume it. Choline um, is yeah, it's it's just so important for so many things, but it's very important for brain health. It's the precursor to acetylcholine. It's part of um, cell membranes. It's it very much involved in um, preventing, helping to prevent fatty liver and improve insulin sensitivity. So there's a lot going on with choline. And um, the enzyme in our body that makes choline is estrogen dependent. So there is this automatic shift at... Um, in the later phases of perimenopause, when estrogen starts to go down, where we, we're going to have a higher choline requirement, some of us. And there's a paper out there, which you can put in the show notes, called the cholinergic effects of estrogen. Basically, in this paper, they're kind of building the case like, wow, are some of the brain benefits of estrogen therapy really about how it promotes choline? And I would just say, because you can also just take choline. So when I started I gave the story earlier about forgetting where we parked our car, like just these like moments of like, what the heck is my brain doing? I knew I, I tried choline because I, I had previously done one of those nutritional DNA tests and I'm not necessarily saying everyone needs to do that, but I happen to know that I'm have a double um, snip, what's called like a, a variant of the enzyme that makes choline. So it's called mm. the PEMPT enzyme. So PEMPT gene. So I'm already a low choline producer then layer on menopause. And I thought, well, I'm going to try this. So I, and you can imagine I'm a naturopathic doctor. So for 30 years, I've been trying supplements. It's what we do. It's like, you read about something. It's like, I'm going to take that. I'm going to try that. And so taking activated choline called the one I took, um, not a brand name, but the form is called alpha GPC. And I, I took that, I started taking that and my brain switched back on. Like, I honestly couldn't believe it. Like I started sleeping and my 
sort of mm. memory came back. And I thought, and I'm not saying that's going to work as well for everyone, because obviously I particularly had a requirement for it, but choline is pretty interesting nutrient. Um, it comes mostly from animal foods, which is where we start to get into some of the controversy around that. People on a plant-based diet are kind of, sometimes, I don't know how your listeners, where they sit on all of that, but um, every time I try to talk about choline on my social media, I get a lot of very angry plant-based diet people because it's sort of one of these things where if choline is that important, then plant-based just doesn't make sense because yeah. clearly we're supposed to be eating it. So we get it from eggs, liver, meat, dairy, to some extent. There's a little bit, to be fair, there's a little bit of choline in plant foods, but not very much. And the other people who really need choline, this is a little bit off topic now, but is pregnant women. Mm. Some researchers, if you start looking into choline, you'll see this kind of de debate going on because it's currently no like recommend a daily really dose for it. And yet some researchers are saying for a healthy pregnancy, you probably need like 900 milligrams, which is, and most people are getting like a hundred from their diet. Mm. So it's, um, it, again, it speaks to, it's again, it's evolutionary mismatch. I think our ancestors, I'm pretty confident they were eating a lot of, well, they were eating organ meats, basically. They were like potentially sure. kind of harvesting brains and stuff from, I mean, this is now kind of going into a different topic, but I think we used to, we evolved on a lot of, nutrient dense animal food it's funny i mean um we were looking so we we've uh found uh the founder of um the name escapes me all of a sudden um but basically a, a farmer in laduke alberta that he basically sells organ meats in capsule form and right, we, yeah. we were looking at this a while ago and there's a there's a company in new zealand too i'm forgetting their name now as well but you know you just have all these kind of I wouldn't say hidden, but subtle benefits of of from organ meats. It just reminded me of that too about about some of the the, the additions that you could get. Because I mean, nowadays, like my kids ain't eating liver. You know what I mean? You like, could hide not... it and stuff. You could no, like put we, it in. I give yeah. them. I, I let them have the supplement. It's, it's okay, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. They, now they're superstars. Um, but yeah, this is honestly, uh, this is extreme gold. I I want to. I know this is a loaded question, but I'm seeing if we can maybe um, do a short version. But when yeah. it comes to like, there's also an evolutionary mismatch when it comes to women's periods, as you mentioned, and you you feel like you know the the amount of symptoms shouldn't be for everybody to the degree that they are. I'm wondering either how to mitigate some of that. Or, like for our younger folks, I know uh, looking at your face, it looks like a loaded question, but if well, so, yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I mean, I want to hear your thoughts just because yeah. this is something that's totally foreign to me. Okay. All right. So periods in general, periods should not be symptomatic. So mm -hmm. I, I do set the bar quite high just from a biological perspective men's a healthy natural menstrual cycle should just arrive you know every approximately a month it definitely does not have to be exactly every 28 days absolutely not but like approximately a month it shouldn't be too heavy you shouldn't lose more than about 80 milliliters which is the contents of an egg i love that mm. kind of analogy like so the um over all the days of the period so a few tablespoons over all the days of the period it shouldn't be painful shouldn't have significant mood distress leading up to it some subtle changes in energy sure and like some subtle changes in how you feel yeah you can even harness that and sort of acknowledge ride that like that's a hormonal resilience kind of thing in fact women get this um the research is we get this um almost there some of the researchers describe it almost superhuman sort of few days leading up to ovulation when our estrogen spikes and we get this little bump up in testosterone and women get quite powerful during that time, especially during sports performances, but like sports, mm. that's when the superhuman part comes out, but more resilient to stress. So there's, should, for a lot of women, there's this like really nice, and as a menopausal woman, I do miss that. I miss the ovulatory kind of shine. Um, we know from the research that women get, um, it makes sense actually, right? When you're ovulate, when you're fertile, when you're ovulating, you get more outgoing. It's like the seeking behavior. Appetite gets suppressed. And instead you kind of go out and just want to meet people and not necessarily have sex, but like you're sort of in this like more extra like outgoing mode, mm. which is really nice, actually. I do miss that. But um yeah, and then yeah, so my my expectation is no symptoms. Now I do understand 
probably even just your listeners are gonna be thinking, wait, what the heck I have, you know, how is that possible? I've got endometriosis, I've got symptoms. It's like, okay. I mean, obviously I acknowledge there are going to be some limits to that. Like everything, there's a, it's a nuanced conversation, but my experience, and that's why I wrote my first book, Period Repair Manual, for most people, not everyone, but for most people, symptomless periods are possible. And a lot of it you can do do with diet, supplements, movement. One of my favorite review, Amazon reviews that I ever got for Period Repair Manual, um, some of them are really great actually, but one of them, she said, she's like, wow, I had no idea that what you eat could affect your period. Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah, women like women have no idea. <laughs> of course, what you eat affects your period because what you eat affects your health, and a menstruation is only an expression of health. It's one part of health. It's not well, separate. Well, I mean, yeah. we don't. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I go to medical school. We don't acknowledge this at all, really. Like in terms of what nutrition is doing to disease states, we don't touch on that at no. all. So, like, I mean, you know, I think people there's a disconnect for people to think like, oh man, the fact that I. I don't know, um, meeting something that might be le- highly processed compared to something that isn't might be affecting my body. So like, is it the same principles that we're hearing for uh, perimenopausal women? Like, is it yeah. like, think of avoiding processed food, making sure we sleep, a, movement? A lot of it's going to be the same. So I talk about a couple of things. Like, so just to say again, men- healthy menstruation, healthy perimenopause is an expression of general health. So in period to manual, I talk about our peer, natural period being our monthly report card. It's quite handy, actually. With my male patients, I'm like, wait, I don't have this monthly report card to ask you about or check in about. So periods are a monthly report card. And then perimenopause is kind of like the final exam before you know, graduating to menopause. So um, yeah, it's a lot of the same principles apply. Yeah. Uh, that's good to know because I, I think that gives a lot of people hope. And I think maybe, Laura, we're going to have you back on even to tackle this one, because this is once again, selfishly as somebody that wants to be more holistic and look at ways that we could better serve our, 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 our patients. This is another area that to me is an absolute, uh, like I'm so ignorant when it comes to this. So I'd, I would love an opportunity to learn more and maybe we get end off a little bit with how do people connect with you? I know your Instagram, Instagram is blowing up it's it's unbelievable the amount of followers and, and engagement there but where where can people follow you yeah i'm easy to find so my my blog is larabryden.com and from there you can link to my my podcast is very um modest it's just me like chatting about things like little 15 minute chats i put that out about once a month um and then my social media is all at Lara Bryden, and i've got two books so far. I'm working on my third, but my two books are Period Repair Manual for Women of Any Age Who Have Periods and Hormone Repair Manual for Women Over 40. Amazing. And and yeah. Laura, it's it's Laura Bryden Podcast, yeah. right? That's just, that's yeah. just the name of the or, podcast. Yeah, LauraBryden.com, Laura Bryden Podcast. That'll, that'll find me. That'll yeah. find you. Thank yeah. you so much. It meant, it meant a lot to me and to our listeners, and this was fantastic. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Make sure to connect with us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, or Twitter at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to Quadcast.substack.com for all our updates. Once again, paid version, you get access to solving healthcare early versions of the the podcast and video access. You guys are going to love it. Leave that five-star ratings. Y'all stay fresh, stay dynamic. Shout out to my boys in Devon. A B. Peace. <laughs>